I'm Patrick O'Mara, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, writers, and others, and we try to get to know the person. Our guest today is Executive Vice President and Provost of the Bloomington campus, Karen Hansen. Karen, welcome. Thank you, Patrick. You know, um, you've been at IU for over 30 years, and you're moving to an exciting new phase in your life uh, at the University of Minnesota. So this is a good time to reflect and to reminisce and to share ideas about higher education and about your, about yourself. Let's start a little bit with you. Did you grow up in Minnesota? Yes, I did. I uh, lived there for most of my childhood, was, was married at the time I graduated from the University of Minnesota. I mean, married just after I graduated yes. and then left, but I was there really for all of my childhood through college. Did you live in Minneapolis? Really in a suburb of, uh, of St. Paul, but it was right near the St. Paul campus. My father was on the faculty there. Yes. So, so the Minnesota winters are not unknown to you? No, they're not unknown, although I think it will be a, um, a process of recollecting when I get there. They, they, uh, it's been a long time in this more southerly climb. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, your parents both attended Minnesota? Yes. University I, of Minnesota? Yes, they did. And your father was a faculty member? Yes. In what area? Uh, animal science. Good. And so then you decided to go there for your undergraduate education. Yeah. I, my brothers had gone there before, I, my older brothers before I went, and uh, it was really just kind of the expected thing that you would go to the, the U, as they say. The U? Mm-hmm. Tell me about the choice, mathematics and philosophy. Yes. Well, that was because I really was having a hard time making a choice. Uh, I enjoyed just about everything I took in, in college, and thought about a lot of different career possibilities um, in the and, in, and really that, that sort of stem side and humanities side were partly to keep a, a number of options open and I chose philosophy for graduate work in part because it was something that would keep a number of options open even longer mm-hmm. uh, so it was a little slow to decide I think I should encourage the students here to explore uh, a lot there's nothing wrong with it and it eventually leads to a career how does mathematics relate to philosophy well there's a kind of overlap in the area of mathematical logic and I was particularly I interested in logic as a an undergraduate and from there you went on to Harvard yes and did both um, a, a master's and a doctorate Yes. What was the thesis topic? Imagination and and the construction of the self. The problem of self-consciousness, trying to understand how we um, recognize ourselves as individuals apart from other individuals is a, a perennial problem in philosophy. And you kept that as an ongoing research interest. Yeah. There are a lot of, of moral issues that connect right. with that issue. There are uh, problems of epistemology, problems of ontology or metaphysics that connect with it. Right. So it's, it's a fertile field. Right. Oh, I want to come back to that as we go through the interview. Okay. I think it would be very interesting to explore that further. So you graduate from Harvard and you applied for jobs then at that point. And I assume this was a, a flourishing philosophy department at that uh, at the time when you applied. Right? It's, it, it certainly was. I, I have to admit that, in fact, the order was slightly different. I didn't graduate and then apply for jobs. No. I came, uh, as we say, ABD, all but dissertation. Uh, I'm not sure that we would do this anymore, hire somebody at that stage. But um, I finished my dissertation when I was here. Uh, this was indeed, a, um, as, as it still is, a, a flourishing philosophy department. I remember my advisor, who, uh, Bob Nozick, not my thesis advisor, but the advisor on the job search, saying, oh, that, Indiana, that's, that's great. That's on, the, uh, that's on the circuit. On the circuit. Mm-hmm. Who was he at the time? Hector Castaneda. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. He was a, a very prominent philosopher, uh, really internationally known. Were the Naknikian Nac- was on the faculty Jack- too. George Naknikian was on yeah. the faculty indeed. Yeah. So um, now what was your early teaching schedule like? How many classes? Did you do two a semester? 
It really was the same as it remains in the philosophy department today. We we basically would offer uh, each faculty member would offer two introductory courses, often larger courses, and then one kind of middle level course for for majors and one graduate course. Mm-hmm. And in a sense. You um, became part of the vitality and life of the philosophy department, but in time, you also went into other units. Yes. My interests were such that they kind of spread into some of the other areas, particularly in the humanities, and a little bit even into the social sciences, Mm because I'm interested in social psychology. And and I enjoyed the opportunity here to meet with people in other departments. There were, you know, it's it's a hugely rich environment intellectually. So I would join reading groups and, and get to know people in other in other areas. And so uh, I did have that opportunity, and I was grateful because it was a huge part of the um, enrichment of, of working here. What other departments did you become affiliated with? Comparative literature and uh, what was then women's studies became gender studies mm-hmm. and American studies. Oh, so that, there, was, uh, there was a real connection then in yes. terms of your work yes. and your interests. Yes. As time went on, you became chair of the department. Yes. And I think it would be good to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a chair. You know, we often talk about um, the difficulties of different administrative jobs. And in many ways, I think being a chair is probably the most difficult because you see your colleagues in the corridor every day. (laughs) Some of them are not getting tenure. (laughs) Some of them want salary raises. (laughs) So tell me about being chair of a department. I think you're characterizing that exactly accurately. It is one of the toughest jobs um, in the administration. And part of it is that you're in the best circumstances, kind of part of a family, Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet everything isn't always going well for every member of the family, the department chair has to keep that kind of collective going. People are are aiming toward a common good of of advancing the mission of their field and Mm -hmm. their discipline. Um, They're engaged collectively in teaching. They depend upon one another's teaching because they teach courses that have other people teaching prerequisites. Mm -hmm. Um, They are a group of people who are working often in different areas of philosophy, but it's, I mean, in different areas of whatever the subject is, and and they they need to uh, champion each other's work, but at the same time, they're working to advance their, their individual work. So it is complicated. There's a lot of responsibility, not as much authority, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but a lot of responsibility. And so it's, um, it's, it's difficult. It, it must work through... Uh, discussion, moral suasion. Um, I I think the best departments are ones that are run fairly democratically. Uh, So the department chair is is answerable for a lot of things, but but has to persuade and and work with the uh, colleagues. What were the achievements of your being chair? Well, I was chair during a time that was in many ways a transitional time for the department, and we had uh, a lot of recruiting to do because a number of of prominent uh, members of the department had retired. There was an untimely death of one of the uh, extremely prominent members of the department. So we we were engaged in rebuilding the department, and I think we did that very successfully. From the philosophy department, the opportunity opened up to become dean of the Honors College. I think we should talk a bit about that move and mm-hmm. maybe a little more about the Honors College. It would be interesting to hear your reminiscences. Well, one of the things about being department chair when I was chair was that it was very focused on faculty rebuilding and keeping the graduate program robust during a period of, of faculty change because the, mm-hmm. fa- the graduate students are very dependent on the, on the faculty. And one of the things that had always been particularly interesting to me in in higher education is undergraduate education. And I think it really was the case, given the circumstances, that I was not in a position to pay as much attention to that when I was department chair as I would have liked. And so it, when that opportunity opened up, it was extremely interesting. Um, most of the public attention in higher education is focused on undergraduate education. It's always an area that um, interests people. It's, it's, it's part of our huge contribution to civil society that we educate undergraduates. So this was an interesting thing to do. And the honors 
College uh, was something that crossed the entire campus as well. That was something else that was attractive to me, that uh, here you could be thinking about how to shape uh, educational opportunities for some of our, our very best students. So when that opportunity came along, I thought, well, that would, that would be an interesting thing to move to at this uh, phase of life. What is the place of the honor student in a state university like this? Well, that is, that's an interesting question. It's been much debated over the decades that I've been here. I, I think there is um, a less contentious position than's been worked out. There was, I remember, even controversy about beginning um, some of these programs that were aimed at exceptionally motivated and talented students. But I, I think the, that we've settled here at um, Indiana University Bloomington on a, what I think is actually a, a correct view that that there are students who are exceptionally motivated. They've, they've performed very well before they get to uh, college. They want to work as hard as possible, and they're very talented. The Honors College can provide extra opportunities for them so that they can go as fast and as far as, as they want to, and they help enrich the climate for all students, including those who are late bloomers and, um, and who may not have learned the study habits that some of the honor students already have. Having terrific students in class makes the whole class better. So I think it's, it's, it's both a responsibility we have to uh, exceptionally talented students um, among our general population. And it's also something, I think, that lifts the character of, of education for, for all our students. Over the past few years, the profile of the entering class of undergraduates in terms of SATs has changed. Mm-hmm. So the bar, as it were, is higher, yes. both in coming in and we're also getting more honor students, I assume. Yes, we, we are. I think that, that what's happened with the uh, undergraduate body at, uh, at Bloomington is indicative of this sort of general bootstrapping that uh, I referred to with respect to any honors college. Good students want to go where good students are already studying. So as we raise the caliber of the class and the expectations for the class, they rise to meet it, and and other serious students want to come to the the same environment. But there is a big distinction. This is a state institution. So we also have the obligation to keep the door open for students who – might not be as gifted as some of the top-flight students. So how do you respond to this notion that the state institution has a special obligation? Well, I do think we have a special obligation to provide access to the state students. But it's also important to recognize that there are a number of institutions throughout Indiana that are are state-supported. And the context for the education of each of the students who might want higher education um, is different at at different campuses. And sometimes the appropriate fit is not at at Indiana Bloomington. But uh, for students who can take advantage of the opportunities we have, we do have to to attend as much as we can to accessibility. And I think really the, the, the more crucial feature about accessibility is, is one that means that we pay attention to the economic factors for students. Mm -hmm. Uh, First-generation students who might not think that they can come to this campus should be encouraged to understand that they can. Uh, Students who might have financial need should be helped so that they they can attend a campus such as this one. Um, It is something we have to watch continuously. The Honors College is now named after a remarkable man that you and I both knew, Mm -hmm. Ed Hutton. Tell us a bit about Ed Hutton. He was a wonderful man, um, self-made man from Bedford, Indiana, who came to first generation, c- coming to to college with a small scholarship, and he, he came to recognize that Bloomington, uh, Indiana University, had opened doors for him and uh, laid the the foundation for the extraordinarily successful career he had. His own get-up-and-go and natural talent also were, were obviously crucial. But he recognized education as something without which he wouldn't have had the career he had. And he was someone who wanted to give back to uh, the institution that had helped shape him. So 
he th- he thought long and hard about how to op- open up opportunities for other students uh, who, again, had the drive he had and the talent he had and who would take advantage of those opportunities. And that was one of the reasons he endowed the International Experiences Program. The other thing that he thought had been crucial to his career was his experience overseas um, during World War II and mm-hmm. just after. And he th- you know, thought if, if, it were, if it was something that worked for him, um, some th- so a way in which he learned much more about the world, he'd like to make that opportunity available to others who might be stopped by, um, by financial need or by uh, not having the encouragement that comes from having a program available to to them, and, and so he endowed this program, and, and it has just been remarkably successful. Uh, he, he so enjoyed hearing from the students. Students would write to him about their experiences, and the phrase was always that this has been life-changing. Each student thought that was a unique phrase for, for him or her, but it was it was a, a leitmotif. In, That's the international experience. Yes. And, and he read every letter they wrote him. He corresponded with those students. He he enjoyed that tremendously, and it was one of the ways in which that kind of circle through time of, of, of someone giving back and then being enriched by seeing the experiences others have had made a difference in his life. He loved to meet the students, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and they him. And and they did. I mm-hmm. remember that vividly. And he would come here and see them. Yes. He also liked the idea of the building. Yes, he did. Were you involved with the planning of the building? Yes. Uh, he, at a certain point, after we had named the um, Honors College after Ed Hutton, he began to realize that we really had the uh, opportunity to to do more with the students we had and with the ideas we had for programming for honors college students and indeed for for all students on campus. Many of the honors college programs are open to to all students on campus. And we were in fairly shabby headquarters. I mean, we were doing good things, but we were in shabby headquarters, converted a couple of converted houses. And so he thought it would be helpful if we if we had a building and a home to call our own. And and we worked uh, together through a number of years. And he, he loved the first drawing the architect came back with. It was a, something that I think was realized beautifully in the in the actual building, where it looks as if it's been on the Indiana University campus forever, um, and it provides the, all the space that uh, we needed for those years for, for programming and for meeting and for providing a home. At the University of Minnesota, do they have an equivalence of the Honors College? Well, they do have um, something that is morphing into an honors college. I actually was part of the very first group that was uh, treated as a, a set of honors students in, in when I was an undergraduate, a, a freshman. And there was no physical home for the, for the program, but uh, we met every week with um, a, a faculty member who was particularly interested in honors education. They arranged for uh, some of the distinguished faculty to recommend books, then come in and talk with us about those books. It was, it was a, a, an extraordinarily interesting um, element in my own freshman year. Mm-hmm. Then the second year of the program, I became an assistant to it and, uh, and you know, ended up being the person who wrote the invitations to the faculty and the thank you notes and so on. Um, it, I didn't realize it was foreshadowing something later in my career, but it was obvious that it was uh, as useful to every generation as it was to me. I, I thought it was, it was extraordinary. I assume you'll be watching over the evolution of honors programs. At, I will indeed. At Minnesota. Karen, before I get into talking about the provost, I think we should have a little musical interlude. Okay. You've chosen John Coltrane. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I, this is a, a great piece of music. I, I love it, and it goes with the idea of the favorite things that I that I'm thinking about in the in reflecting on the um, on the last thirty years here, thirty thirty five years here, really. I was having some difficulties in in thinking about pieces of music, in part because we have such an extraordinary music school and such an extraordinary musical environment in the in Bloomington, and. In the end, I just decided I had to make a rule to myself that I would pick some pieces that were not coming from the music school because <laughs> otherwise we would have picked hundreds and hundreds of pieces. <laughs> yes. So uh, that 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 was the choice of Goldrain.
this is Profiles. I'm Patrick O'Mara, and I'm delighted that our guest today is Executive Vice President and Provost of the Bloomington campus, Karen Hansen. Karen, we've talked about this journey of yours, coming to IU, being in the philosophy department, then moving into the Honors College, and then moving in as Provost of the Bloomington campus. One question that always strikes me with higher administration is, in some ways, it's a little more protected than the departmental chair we talked about. You don't have to see your colleagues in the corridor every day. On the other hand, many of the decisions that are made have enormous consequences. They can affect where the university is and where it might be for the next 20, 30 years. Do you agree? Yes, I do. And I I think the distance from some of the decisions can be a problem sometimes for the executive administration so that we have to recognize that and make sure that we stay in close contact with the faculty and the operations uh, that are really at the heart of this university, the research and the and, and teaching. Um, I think it was extremely useful for me that I knew so many people on the faculty. It's part, a part of of, of being in one place at one time uh, and being interested in what people are doing in, in a variety of fields, not just my own. Uh, but I think staying in touch with the effect of decisions and the, the needs of the, of the faculty and students really is crucial. Is there special satisfaction from being an administrator? Well, that is an interesting question. <laughs> there is, because I, I think this is it is an, a really important function in the university. I mean, there is a, um, um, a faculty attitude toward administration that I'm not unfamiliar with, that it's going over to the dark side, <laughs> that uh, it means you've sort of lost your way intellectually. I think that underestimates the importance of keeping the uh, support system appropriately constructed for, for, for the, the real work of the university, the teaching and research. Um, that is something, of course, that Herman Wells underscored, that the important thing was for administrators to support the faculty and get out of their way. Uh, I, I think that's right. I think it's a, it's a, a kind of uh, spine for, for the, the posture that we should be taking in, as administrators. Um, but it is, it is crucial work. Without it, the, the, the university couldn't hold together. What would you say your major achievement is for the past four years? Or a couple of achievements, or a couple of directions, maybe. Well, we we have been uh, engaged quite recently in in rethinking uh, the academic structure of the campus. This is a project that has to continue with additional consultation with the faculty and the schools, but. The university does need to reflect on itself at regular intervals to see whether or not it's it's offering the things that it should be offering in the in the way of curricula, or to mm-hmm. see whether or not it's pursuing lines of research that really are keeping it at the forefront of the of the quest for for knowledge. And the, the I think the the process that we've been going through, and which we are still going through, I think is is really one of the things that will will kind of help shape the the campus for the upcoming years. I think actually something that is a recurrent duty is is one that is um, worth mentioning. There's nothing more important really than the tenure decision for, for faculty and for the character of the institution. The, the institution really rises or falls with the quality of the faculty. So reading and um, thinking hard about the promotion and tenure dossiers, which happens every year, but is is always a, an interesting um, and challenging activity because it's it's important to understand what people are trying to accomplish, how they how they they mm-hmm. uh, are evaluated by their peers and by the the um, national and international community. That that's extremely important, and I yes. think keeping those those decisions full of the integrity that we, we want them to have is, is important. So uh, some things that are recurrent are among the most important, actually. You also navigated the reaccreditation. Yes. That was a big job. It was, and we still oh, have the Bloomington some... campus, I should say. <laughs> yes, the 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 process of of preparing for that had begun before uh, I became provost, 
but the accreditation visit was upon us as I um, as I came into that office, and we have had some things that will help shape the character of of education here for a while. Emerge from that, we're still working on that. We have to do much more in learning um, outcomes assessment. And and we've begun to put in place some structures that will do that and I think have worked very well with uh, other faculty initiatives, including the initiatives in general education. So I think that's that's going well. I think the campus will prosper as it embraces some of those goals. Do you anticipate differences in the administrative duties at Minnesota compared to Bloomington? It's a bigger campus, of course. Yeah, it's a bigger campus, and, and there are um, a so number. 50,000 50, students. Yeah, I think 52,000. 52,000, yeah. <laughs> But it, it also has some schools that we uh, don't have in Bloomington in a way. It kind of it, – it's the land-grant school in Minnesota, so it mm-hmm. combines some of the things that Purdue has in, in Indiana. It has engineering. It has it has also the, the, the med school right there and the, a number of other um, academic health schools, dentistry, nursing, and uh, public health, veterinary medicine. It also has an ag school. The issues that are important, that are um, the modes of operation, sometimes vary across these kinds of, of disciplines and the activities vary. So there, there's, a, there's a lot to learn there. You mentioned that you wanted to keep in touch with the faculty, but it's also important that the provost be recognized as a scholar. And I was looking over your book, The Self-Imagined Philosophical Reflections on the Social Character of the Psyche. What a remarkable book. Oh, thank you. What a great um, statement as well. And in reading it, uh, I saw all kinds of connections that intrigued me. One in particular, the notion of self-deception and self-knowledge. And that, to me, is really the essence, isn't it, of a lot of philosophy. It is important. Yeah. You know, those are are inherently puzzling notions. A self-deception is an inherently puzzling notion. I think sometimes people have to... um, uh, get in a particularly contemplative mood before they really see some of the problems that philosophers think of as pressing problems. But self-deception is on its face um, an intriguing problem. How can it be that I can deceive myself? Exactly. Don't I know what I'm doing? Uh, and that's why the issue of how, how what we do know about ourselves uh, is, is also a question. How do we have what we think of as self-knowledge? Many of us recognize in others failures of self-knowledge. It's harder to recognize in ourselves. Coming up with a coherent account, an account that kind of satisfies the puzzles about self-deception, does, in my view, uh, depend upon getting a clear notion of the self and then trying to, to see how, out of that clear and defensible notion, you can make sense of, of the idea of lying to oneself. And you also mentioned self-interest mm-hmm. and egocentricity as mm-hmm. elements in this. Yeah. I think that one of the virtues of, a, of an account of the self that I eventually embraced is that it finds a way to uh, dissolve egocentricity as a fundamental liability of human beings. I mean, we may be excessively self-interested, but that that's then a moral failing. That's something we can't control because mm-hmm. of our metaphysical nature. Uh, we may we may um, be thinking mainly of ourselves with respect to various kinds of actions or um, ways of being in the world. But I, I try to offer an account of the self that suggests that is not inevitable. It is not something about the structure of the self that that um, ensures that there are ways of combating it. Where does the imagination then come into this? Well, in the account I try to offer, um, uh, imagination is in the the link that allows us the, the sort of intellectual capacity that allows us to um, both have a self and then recognize features of the self. This, of course, just presses a, a kind of philosophical problem backwards. You have to give a non-puzzling account of imagination, mm-hmm. or um, or you haven't really gotten very far on this. But that is something else I think one can do: give an account of imagination that's robustly empirical, really. Uh, 
philosophy is in a funny position with respect to empirical data. I mean, the, by and large, although there's a movement now to have um, uh, what's thought of as more empirical philosophy, by and large, philosophy still is a, a kind of armchair uh, discipline, but that doesn't mean it's unrelated to um, knowledge about the external world or or uh, facts that about the external world. It's it's that the data of philosophy are often the things that are right in front of our our faces all the time. Understanding how to make sense of our experience depends upon our having experience mm-hmm. that we're attentive to, uh, and that is often the material for philosophy. The empirical self that you refer to you see as a product, as it were, of intellection, as you call it, rather Mm -hmm. than imagination. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, there's a sense in which one must recognize that an individual's way of being in the world is not something that is understood only by that individual alone. Other people observe one are uh, appropriately making various kinds of judgments about an individual. And there's, a, there's, of course, this sort of sense that we are physically in a world and socially in a particular context in so that world. So it is world. empirical then? It is empirical. And, and there are, I mean, there, there may be views one wants to have of oneself that are so unrelated to the reality of one's circumstances that one can actually be said to be wrong about it. So there, there, you know, there's a, there are em- empirical data that can be brought to bear on judgments about the self, one's own or others. You know, even though this is a philosophical treatise, I see all kinds of practical applications of what we're talking about, including these notions of self-deception and self-knowledge and maybe some of our colleagues. You're absolutely right. There are practical, um, <laughs> there are practical uh, yeah. effects of this. That's one of the reasons I think this is a fertile field. It connects with issues that really are pressing in our moral lives. Yeah. I think it's time for another break, and you've chosen Leonard Bernstein, Mm -hmm. and you've chosen something special. Well, part of the reason I chose this was because there are, um, again, a number of ties between Bernstein and the um, music environment here at at Bloomington. He's visited the the Jacobs School. Um, I chose this selection from Candide, the, um, the Best of All Possible Worlds, because it reminded me of what I one of the things I had loved about the life I've been able to lead here. It's coming from the Voltaire, which is a, a, a kind of satire of Leibniz, and the, and and it's then presented its, itself in this rich musical environment. Um, the connection between literature and philosophy and the arts is something that is is reflected here in a particularly striking and amusing way. So um, that was the reason. Let us review lesson 11. Paragraph 2, axiom 7. Once one dismisses the rest of all possible worlds, one finds that this is the best of all possible worlds. Once one dismisses the rest of all possible worlds, one finds that this is the best of all possible worlds. They classify pigeons and camels. Pigeons can fly. Camels are mammals. There is a reason for everything under the sun. There is a season for everything under the sun. Objections. What about snakes? Snakes. For snake that tempted Mother Eve Because of snake we now believe That though depraved we can be saved From hellfire and temptation Because of snake's temptation If snake had not seduced our lust and This is Profiles And our guest today is the Executive Vice President And Provost of the Bloomington Campus Karen Hansen Production support for Profiles Comes from Smithville A locally owned business Serving central and southern Indiana Since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Karen, we've been discussing philosophy and your career as a distinguished philosopher. You just received an award, I gather. Yes, uh, I was was really um, thrilled and honored by that. It's, it's It's an award named for Phil Quinn, who was a... Uh, really distinguished and wonderful philosopher at Notre Dame. Tell me, would you encourage your daughters to study philosophy? 
yes. Uh, but that was the one thing they said they didn't want to study. It was a little hard on them having two parents who were philosophers. Uh, early on in their lives, they were they were receptive to this and enjoyed the kind of argumentative structure that that they'd see exemplified even in ordinary conversations. Um, but right now, they're in a stage where they're defining themselves, and that's of course appropriate. You know, I want to talk a bit about the place of the university and especially the public university in higher education as we move into this new century. Mm -hmm. And this question of philosophy is a bridge in some ways. So many of the programs at the university that are attractive to students and to parents are applied programs. Mm -hmm. How do you make the case to a parent or to a young person who comes along and says, I want to major in philosophy? I think there um, is a, is an extremely uh, persuasive case to be made for philosophy and, and indeed for the rest of the humanities. Um, part of what we, we want to be doing in higher education is helping people lead more meaningful lives. Now, that can take a lot of forms. I mean, meaningful work is an, is an important part of a meaningful life. And and many of the parents, particularly, I think, and um, and also the students who have a lot of anxieties about uh, about the current economic situation and their own futures are are focused on on something that they think will help them find entree to the world of paid work, uh, and that's understandable. It's it's appropriate. They need to be preparing for careers, but they also need to understand that their careers will take many forms over the, the course of their uh, long lives. And understanding how to make meaning in your life, which is really what the humanities are best at, is going to be important for them at every stage of life. So it, it is part of what helps us lead a meaningful life and understand our lives and be able to, um, to, to find satisfaction in the work we do and in the relationships we have. Uh, there is something to be gained from the formal study of of the things that I think are part of of an educated person's adult life. No matter what, people will read novels, people will read mm -hmm. essays, people will will um, want to discuss issues with others. Having the the kind of disciplined background that comes from the humanities that can be brought to bear on those activities is is extraordinarily enriching. It makes life better. At the very least, our professional schools should be moving further and further into the realm of ethics, situational ethics, yeah, it, I assume, it, as it, well. I mean, that's another argument, isn't it? Right. I mean, that's something that confronts all of us, and it certainly con confronts people in special ways when they take up professional roles. Uh, all of us should be concerned about how we, um, how we behave, how we, right. how we do the right thing. What, what we, we all face ethical conundrums in our lives. And some of them are faced because of the human condition. Some of them are faced because of role responsibilities. But formal study of ethics helps. It's a tough argument in some ways because as a state institution, there are certain expectations that the university will serve the interests of the state. Mm -hmm. And that can be complicated. True. But I, I think it, that, that the humanities serve the interests of the state in part in, um, in producing reflective, knowledgeable citizens. I mean, we educate for democracy, too. That is clearly yeah. part of the, of the, the mission of, of state-supported universities. I mean, I'm sure most colleges and universities think that's an important part of their mission, but it is really an explicit part of our mission. And, uh, and I think that... Uh, that we do a good job of that and the, the humanities help in, in our discharge mm -hmm. of our duties there. I notice with interest that the British universities are now going to be monitored by the ministry mm -hmm. to determine what are the essential disciplines. Yeah. And there are disciplines that are going to suffer because of this. Yes. And I hope we're far away from that model. I do too. I mean, the the drive for... Knowledge, the the kind of press for um, robust and again disciplined inquiry is something that's driven from within. It is not something that's that's kind of overseen by people who aren't actually part of that. Although again, we we understand the way in which we have to be responsive to 
society's interests and the state's interests. It is important, I think, for the for the health and the success of the search for knowledge that it be driven by by the inquirers. And in fact, a utilitarian approach to higher education can sometimes be defective because you need to have the imagination to project ahead. Absolutely. And what might appear to be esoteric might be very practical in 10 years. Absolutely. I mean, we, we see that again and again in, in and, uh, you know, with sort of historical um, circumstances should be able to, to make that case that, that you, you can't always predict what will be an extremely important discovery. In the current financial environment for state institutions, and that's going to affect you as much, maybe even more so in Minnesota, mm-hmm. is it going to be more difficult to make that case to legislators? I think the difficult financial circumstances we're in as a as a nation and as a world right now make this this case more difficult at the moment. But but the fundamental um, answers to to the question why invest in education really are the same as they were when our universities were established. Uh, the same goods are being pursued. Those same goods still are goods, and. Uh, I, I think we do have to find a way as as big, complicated institutions to be as efficient as we possibly can be with respect to things that admit of you know business efficiencies. But the 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 free inquiry, the um, the attention to student development, those are things that that were there at the beginning, and they should be there as we move forward. We may find new ways. We may be assisted by technology in various ways to to discharge our mission, but but the but the mission is is a remarkably enduring one. On the other hand, there is a demand that the public university have public benefits mm-hmm. that are evident, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's the trick, isn't it, to yeah. somehow reconcile these two aspects? Yeah, I think par- part of that demand is a, is a reasonable one. If the public is investing in in these institutions. It, expect some return on its investment. But the universities have to make the case that that return is being made both through the, the education of the, of the citizens and uh, the preparation of the next generation for their contributions to society and through the, the vast number of research discoveries that come out of, of universities. That really is the engine of innovation in this country. And, of course, there's always the national need that has to be served too, mm-hmm. not just the state need. Absolutely. And the national need might be defined in a very different way Right. in the sciences in terms of exploring new knowledge. Right. But that's another place where in some sense there's a public investment. Uh, the investment has been remarkably successful since the kind of uh, engagement of the federal government with uh, research universities since World War II. It's been remarkably successful. Uh, So I think we have a good track record there that we can point to. Do you see a role for cooperation between universities? Oh, yes. I mean, partly some of the... um, the research enterprises that we were just talking about are, are ones where uh, they're accomplished most effectively. In fact, sometimes only uh, only have, have a chance of being accomplished if people are cooperating across universities. And sometimes the infrastructure of research is so expensive that it makes sense to uh, to share it. Uh, we always co- are, are engaging with our colleagues, no matter our field, across university boundaries. But there are some ways in which um, recognizing that formally is, I think, going to be an important part of the agenda in the next decade. Karen, when you and I entered the classroom many years ago, it was a different kind of place. Mm-hmm. There was chalk and a blackboard <laughs> and an eraser, and we sort of sat opposite our students. Now we have all kinds of new innovations. Mm-hmm. Tell me your perception of what's happening to the classroom. Is it changing it certain, certainly is, and, and I think we can think of that as another enrichment. It may well be that um, students today learn in different ways than, than we did when, when we entered the class, classroom as students. Yeah. There's still probably a place for chalk occasionally. Um, oh, but I know. students working much more collaboratively as they tend to work in the world of work, as they tend to work actually in um, – even in the um, in the humanities, people work through discussion and so on. It's it's much 
it's much less passive, I think, in the classroom now than it used to be when almost all of the instruction was through lectures and, uh, and an audience that could ask questions occasionally mm-hmm. but was largely silent. And there is some evidence that particularly this generation um, learns better the that The participatory way. engagement mm-hmm. of a student. Yeah. But the other issue that we have to contend with is the very nature of the classroom itself might be redundant for a number of courses, that the students could very well do some of these courses without attending the class. I think that's something that universities have to think about, but this may be another way of of, um, restructuring some of our basic enduring missions. If it turns out that there is the best lecture on X that's that's Mm -hmm. given somewhere, and it may indeed be accessible through one's uh, laptop computer, there's still a place for the kind of discussion and and working out of problems that are raised by that kind of, of lecture. So we may in the future have all of our students see on their own time the world's best lecture on X, but we will probably still have smaller classroom sessions where they meet with with experts in the field and discuss with one another and come up with solutions to problems and new problems that they will pursue. You might agree or disagree, but I think one of the great values of uh, attending a university is outside of the classroom. Absolutely. It's the part of growing up and interacting. Yeah, absolutely. I And peer interactions are, are remarkably important in that. I, I think as faculty, we tend to think that most of the, the, the learning is going on in faculty-student interactions, and we hope an, an enormous amount of learning is going on in those interactions, but an enormous amount goes on um, outside of that context, too, through through peer interactions, through interactions with staff, through interactions with the community, uh, where some of the things that are more abstract and theoretical are being applied. You know, as we talk about this, I'm also struck about the changes in terms of libraries. Mm-hmm. What is the library of the future? And that's a big issue, do you? It certainly is. We, we had a, a, a faculty forum on that quite recently on this campus because things are changing at different um, speeds in different disciplines. There are uh, expectations that faculty have for more digital access, but many faculty still want the kind of traditional access to the materials of the library. This is an area that's going to be um, uh, one which requires important engagement by the faculty in the next few years. And it spills over, doesn't it, the notion of the book Yes, it does. What is the notion of the book? Absolutely. I'm in the midst of doing a new edition of a textbook, and I'm thinking it's going to be the last one because it'll now be web-based. Well, it'll it'll be it won't be the last one. It'll be a, a, a new form that, yeah, that a new will form require the the same kind of attention to updating. And um, uh, it is an interesting question about whether what kind of an entity the book is, um, and, and it's interesting to wrestle with it practically. And that affects even tenure and promotion. Yes. Yes. So those are very key questions. Yes, they are. We're coming to the end, but before we have a musical moment, we've been talking about the past, and we've been talking about the current, and we're also talking about the future. How would you sum up all of this? What What's the excitement now of, you said you were thrilled in some ways at the new challenge of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. How are the past and the present, how does all of this come into your new role. How is the past and the present going to affect your future? Well, that is a that is a very complicated and deep question. I think one of the things that I am forever grateful about, given this, this career, uh, a career in universities, um, is is that it allows one to go on to new challenges, to think afresh about new problems and to try to contribute to solutions to those problems. It helps to have a base of knowledge, to have a sense of what has and hasn't worked in the past, to be interested in the the new frontiers with respect to a variety of of, of disciplines. And that's something I look forward to. I'll, I will have to learn a lot in the in the new role. I'll have to learn a new context as well as as learn about the the folkways and the mores of um, of particular f- fields that I haven't engaged with as as closely in my time at IU. But but I look forward to that. It is one of the thrilling things about being in a university. You might come back to Bloomington. Absolutely, we'll come back. <laughs> Karen, what did you choose for your last musical uh, excerpt? 
Well, a, a song I absolutely love, and that is um, certainly emblematic for me of Bloomington. And right now, the the uh, the words are also ones that you know, connect with the um, the sadness I feel about leaving this place, but the um, the sense that it will always be in my heart. And uh, you know, once again, this is something I've heard performed so beautifully in so many ways by by people from the Jacobs School of Music. But I uh, have have brought in today the Nat King Cole version of Stardust. And also, of course, the composer's connection. Yeah, absolutely. We've been speaking with Karen Hansen, Executive Vice President and Provost of the Bloomington Campus. Karen, thank you so much for being with us, and I wish you incredible success in your new role Thank you Minnesota. so much, Patrick. This is Patrick O'Mara for Profiles, and thank you for listening. And now the purple dusk of twilight time Steals across the meadows of my heart High up in the sky The little stars climb Always reminding me That we're apart You wander down the lane and far away Leaving me a song that will not die The program you just heard was recorded in December of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.